I'm Summer. And I'm Elle. This season on the South Phoenix Oral History Podcast. Join us as we research, write, and submit an article for academic publication. From start to finish. Each episode will share our progress with you. And challenge you to work side by side on your own project. Our work is grounded in oral history research and method, but yours doesn't have to be. Consider us your global virtual writing group. Let's do this together. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Summer. How are you? So good. How are you? Doing great. Are you ready to talk historical research? I am. Absolutely. Perfect. So for our listeners, uh, if you've been missing us, we've had a ton going on. Um, Ellie and I are both academics, so she's been working on her own academic projects. I got back to school, I've been teaching classes, um, and I had uh, a major book deadline for one of the projects I'm working on. So that's why you haven't seen us for a couple of weeks, but we are back and ready to go. So what are we uh, talking about today? Okay, so I thought what we could do is discuss, um, and this is an audio medium, so none of you are seeing this, but I'm showing Ellie. Uh, Andrew Weiss's Places of Their Own, African-American Suburbanization in the 20th Century. And I believe it was published in 2004 uh, by the University of Chicago. Uh, And so I thought it would be good because he looks specifically at Black suburbanization. uh, And it's not just about sort of the history of suburbanization. It's specialized. Perfect. So do you want to tell us a little about what you learned uh, while reading the book and also how you found it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've studied in my PhD program, I focused on the urban West and I looked specifically at the Chicano and African-American movements, uh, rights movements of that um, region. So I I specialized in Denver, but I was also interested in like Phoenix, LA, Seattle. What were like the Chicano movement and the civil rights movement? What did they look like uh, during the 20th century in the urban West? And as a result, we read a lot in my program about kind of urban history, suburban history, and African-American or Black and Chicano history. So those things kind of tended to overlap. And this book in particular was introduced to me by one of my mentors. I believe it was assigned in my African-American history class. And that's how I first learned about it. So when I read it, it would have been maybe, it would probably have been a, a new book. It would have been maybe only a couple of years old. And in history circles, we're not like, the scientific community where, you know, a, a year is an old study. If it's, you know, for us, it's really, if it's in the last 20 years, it's still pretty relevant. And even then it tends to be foundational. So when uh, Weiss came out with this in 2004, he was really looking at how urban historians had defined suburbanization. And he had a direct challenge to that definition by way of looking at the African-American experience through that lens. Uh, And then just like a quick little story about having met this book was I was in this class and apparently no one else had done the reading. So when you're in a graduate program, there's a lot of people who come to the classroom and haven't read, but they all know how to like talk the talk. And for whatever reason, I, I had read because I could never, I could never BS my way through those classes. Um, But I had read. And for whatever reason, the professor, my mentor teaching the class just got fed up with us and he like shut it down and he was like okay put your books away put your phones away and your laptops you're all taking a test and he made us take a test on this book and I was the only person who had read it so I was the only person who passed the test (laughs) 
but that was like a long time ago now. So, um, yeah. So do you want me to tell you, like, give you like a breakdown of the book? What do you think? Yeah. Just breakdown of the book. What's about, um, maybe the argument, like with the, um, where it's, uh, sort of located against the literature of the time and, you know, the usual. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. So like I said, Weiss was really writing in contest to the kind of agreed upon history of suburbanization, which was tied. There's a couple different forms of suburbanization. You might look at it as it's tied to like the um, Industrial Revolution in the early 20th century, or you might look at it in the post-war and, and connect it to white flight. So uh, white people living in the urban core who are going further and further out as they have more access to transportation and they have more access to um, available land or available plots of homes, and it is a segregated space. So that's typically what kind of the model of suburbanization was held in the history, um, kind of the historical community. And Weiss was challenging this. He actually said, no, that's not really true. If you look at it through the experiences of African-American, suburbanization is still tied to choice, right? African-Americans and in other ways for us, for our purposes, Hispanic or Chicano people, they also chose suburbanization. They also found spaces outside of the city. Um, they just might've been a little bit closer than the white folks were. And he really connected this to black people weren't left in the urban core, right? They also made choices that were aspirational. They were hoping to establish themselves as middle-class and home ownership was key to doing that. And it's really, at the time, it was truly groundbreaking when he wrote this. Now it's not so much, right? Now we kind of widely accept, I mean, I hope we widely accept that Weiss has a point here, uh, but in the early 2000s, it would have been pretty, pretty revolutionary what he was saying. So the book is broken into three parts. The first, he looks at African-American suburbanization from about 1900 to World War II, so the early part of the 20th century, and he links it to the Great Migration. So when people were leaving the South because of Jim Crow and Black Codes um, and, you know, racial violence in the South, they fled to places by the millions, really, uh, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. But they also sought out further flung places like San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, and to a lesser extent, places like Denver and Phoenix. So that's the first really big chunk. And so I love that he ties this great migration story to a story of suburbanization. Because we think of it rural to urban, south to north. He's saying some of it is rural to urban, but some of it's rural to suburban already that early on, which is pretty great. Um, and he uses that concept of aspirations there. The second period he charts is more kind of that typical suburbanization trope we see that's post-war or interwar, 1940s to 1950s. He really shows that Black suburbanization was typified by the same experience as white folks, right? <laughs> People who were moving to the suburbs had similar motivations. They had similar access. They just maybe didn't have access in terms of segregated communities. And so much that's happening in the 40s and 50s is in response to forced uh, integration through housing, employment, and ultimately education. And so he's tracking that through that period. And so he's looking at, um, historians use these concepts of de facto and de jure segregation. So de facto is kind of, not even on accident, but sort of in practice, and de jure is by law. So it's established in the law. 
We've done away with some of those distinctions because you truly can find de facto and de jure examples everywhere. So it's like, you just show how they're interrelated. But he really showed during this period how segregation limited Black choice, but didn't shut it down completely. And instead, what he shows is the growing middle class. It might have been small, right? But it was growing and they had access to suburban spaces. This is really his challenge, right? But then he looks at regional distinctions. And I remember earlier in an episode, one of our um, listeners might have been screaming in their car because it's like, it's not about Chicago, it's about Atlanta. So this is really, he has a regional distinction. He looks at the differences between suburbanization in the interwar period in Atlanta and suburbanization in the interwar period in Dallas. So I thought that might be a place we could look at in terms of South Phoenix, right? How is South Phoenix establishing itself as a suburb and a suburban space for Black people in that interwar period? And is it similar to Atlanta? Is it similar to Dallas? Or is it very different? Something to consider. And then finally, his third focus is on the post-1960s end of the 20th century, really tying the process of Black suburbanization to civil rights. So um, the urban crisis is beginning to be something that people know about. You have kind of race-related conflict in the urban core, uh, and you have the meta-narrative that is saying, you know, things went bad by the 80s for the civil rights movement, for example. And he really shows that actually, no, suburbanization is part of the civil rights movement. You have Black agency moving people into neighborhoods that they before were not allowed to be in. So I thought, for example, in Phoenix, he would have seen maybe Lincoln and Eleanor Ragsdale, who were the first and among the only African-Americans to live north of Washington Street in the 1950s, I believe is when they moved to the Encanto neighborhood. He's saying that's a civil rights active, like activism, right? That's civil rights in nature. And we could look at that as well. How is this movement of people not in reaction to or not forced by right? But as part of a greater story of choice and freedom and civil rights and access. So that's really kind of the breakdown of his book. But there's one thing I wanted to point out that I thought was really, really cool. And we'll see if there is, uh, like if he has some of these on um, online, some of these might be fair use, these photos, but he has a section So the book is called Places of Their Own, and the chapter called Places of Their Own is the African-American Suburban Dream. And what he did was he took historic photographs and he also created historic maps where he identified different spaces of suburbanization. Uh, And what I like about it, and like, look at this cute little charming house. Some of these photographs are historic, but others are done by him, 1998. So he took that photo in 1998 in uh, Chagrin Falls Park. That must be, let's see, where is that? Chagrin Falls Park, Ohio. So anyway, I thought that was kind of neat too, how he integrated some of his own photography and he did some useful maps. But ultimately I thought that was a unique approach to suburbanization and really urbanization. Because even just the, the the words themselves, when you hear the word urban, you ultimately think sort of people of color. And when you think suburban, you ultimately think white people, right? And he's saying that that's actually not true. And if we start to track you know, migration patterns, even tiny, tiny migration patterns, 
suburbanization occurs among all people during this, this interwar and post-war period. That's wonderful. (laughs) Great summary. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I hope he would agree. If he heard it, I hope he'd be like, yeah, that sounds like my book. (laughs) Um, So I have one question. And how do you think this is relevant for our research? How do you think we can use this? Mm, Yeah. So every time we read anything, we're not just reading it for the author's thesis or the author's claim. We're reading it so that we can say, this fits within my study. So several weeks ago, we focused on sort of popular general work. And we're like, how does this even work? And we do the same thing with scholarship. So like I said, for our use, Weiss's work is no longer a groundbreaking or earth shattering claim, but it's nonetheless useful. And sometimes it's really nice to have a book like his, where it's like 20 years old or so. So it's vetted. The community generally accepts it, right? There's other scholarship around it. Whereas a lot of times, especially historians in like a graduate school program, they get real hopped up on like the cool new theory, right? Whatever, whatever the thing is that everyone's talking about, they get excited and they want to link their research to that. And that's great. Sometimes that's sometimes that's a longstanding uh, concept or theory that ultimately creates a school of thought, but sometimes it becomes very dated very fast. So I like the idea that we could use Weiss's um, structure as we talk about suburbanization, um, the African-American experience. We can use that and reference him without it being like flashy, right? It's like, as Weiss said, this is what happened, right? Um, Places of their own, as I said, he really emphasizes agency, cultural capital, the claiming of space, and the building of suburban spaces with their own hands. And I know that happened in Phoenix, right? We have a space in South Phoenix called the Mexican Ditch, for example. And it's where Mexican families and homesteaders physically carved out irrigation ditches from the Salt River and the, um, I believe the Tempe Canal in order to pull water to their own homes. And so this is like a physical action for why is it was like chicken coops, right? They built chicken coops in these like just adjacent to the urban space. And they managed, they had these, their own little communities, right? They had their own little um, like outfly communities from the South where people participated in say chain migration. They begin to form these little spaces that's really representative of their lived experience. And I think we could see that here in South Phoenix as well. And then he talks about, um, this is brilliant and, and not, again, like not new, but it's good to have a citation for it. He talks about racist housing restrictions that were usually local or state law, despite federal law and the GI Bill. So we know that happens in South Phoenix. We know that African-American veterans return from World War II. They have access to money through the GI Bill and no one will sell them property. So as a result, you typically have black owned construction companies or black owned brick companies, black owned land companies. development companies are small, but they're mighty. And they start selling homes to people through the GI Bill. So we know that happened in South Phoenix. And now we have an expert saying it happened elsewhere. Um, Let's see. And then the other thing he talked about is the suburbanization to they're called like adjacent neighborhoods. So you've got your like downtown corridor, and then you have just maybe just ever so slightly south and east or ever so slightly south and west, for example. So both African Americans and Hispanics lived in these barrios or neighborhoods that we could define as suburban spaces using Weiss's approach. 
So we have, um, they built their own, they create their own suburbs, right? Like through Williams and Jones, for example, or they collaborated with the city, the Matthew Henson um, housing project, or they just carved out their own, their own spaces. So one reviewer who reviewed his book in, gosh, probably 2004, um, Barbara Kelly, oh, 2006, she said that this particular work is a blueprint for examining other suburbs that do not conform to the white flight stereotype. Uh, and I agree. I think that this would be a useful blueprint for us if we wanted to use it. Actually, I'm so grateful that you mentioned a book review because that's something that I, I sometimes I completely forget that they exist. And then when I remember, they are such a useful and valuable resource. Yeah. Um, and it, they're just amazing. But that's just a... <laughs> no, it's good. Why do you think book reviews are so useful? Well, for example, um, if you are just approaching a research and it's maybe just a little bit outside of your expertise, you need to know like which books to read and if books are long. So yeah. uh, purchasing one or asking your library to get it for you, you might want to know if it's actually useful to you. And right. book reviews are perfect for that because they provide a summary. They tell you what the uh, thesis statement is and they're generally pretty accurate. So I, I love book reviews. <laughs> yeah, I do too. And I think book reviews also do this thing where we're looking for how we can use this book. Book reviews tend to be more general. So you can kind of get an idea of what that book's about without getting into the weeds too much. And then you can decide if it's worth it. The other thing I like about book reviews is you get a sense of what the historical community around that topic felt at the time. What was what were the trends in the field? So a book review of, you know, from uh, Barbara Kelly was two years later. That's still pretty close to the publication deadline because journals take forever to publish things, as we know. So it's kind of a good snapshot in time. Like, was this a revolutionary text? Did it change the field forever? Or did it kind of pick at something? You know, did it, I love, um, one of the best examples is Patricia Nelson Limerick in the 80s wrote Legacy of Conquest. And she, she truly turned the field of Western American history on its head. She, that one book, I mean, there was a school of thought around it, but hers was the flashpoint. And you get to see that from book reviews. Did this book or this theory or this concept change the way historians do research? Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. So what um, what did you think as you heard about this, Ellie? Were you like, oh, that could be useful? Or I, I'd like to know more about his approach on that or this. Yeah, actually, um, I was thinking if, and I don't know if he does this in the book, but uh, does he talk about natural boundaries and if there's a correlation between where natural boundaries are placed in a particular city and where the suburbs are located? Oh, gosh, what a great question. Like um, natural boundaries being something like a river. Yeah. Yeah. What about man-made like highways, bridges, oh. railroads? That too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely something to look into because he talks more about, well, I noticed more um, sort of restrictive covenants, laws, but I would bet you there's a mention of things like railroads, 
I mean, we could argue that laws are man-made boundaries. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so true. That's a really good observation because uh, one of the things I always kind of joke about is that historians claim that really there's three major things that separate the haves from the have-nots. And usually a city has one, right? They have a highway, they have a river, or they have a railroad track. And South Phoenix has all three. So it's a good thing for me to think about and us to think about as we're doing these, while we're studying this stuff, is what do other historians note about the communities they study? But that's, that's I mean, even if Wise doesn't talk about that, that's still something that we can find in other studies, probably articles. Some, mm-hmm. I guess somebody has talked about this. Yeah, I love it. I really liked for him and I, I, the model I enjoy is the agency is in the black community here. So it's not a reaction or resist like a, it is resistance, but it's not a reaction to, or a defense of it's like the people he's studying are active agents of this experience. They're not just being pushed, right? They're not being moved around by legislation. Uh, they're carving out their own space. And I think that we could definitely apply that concept to South Phoenix. Yeah, I agree. Cool. All right. Well, Ellie, let's tell our listeners what we're going to work on next. Okay. So we have a pretty good plan <laughs> for, uh, follow- for our following weeks. Um, so we want to, we have a couple of episodes planned. Uh, we'd like to talk about how we want to frame the article. Uh, so a general, basically essay plan for the article. And we also want to talk about historical reports. Do you want to say something about these reports, Summer? Yes. So in our work of trying to track down anything and all things on South Phoenix, we have come across, I mean, I sent an email to a city employee. She never responded. I think I overwhelmed her of like 85 reports that I want to see. <laughs> I think she was like, I, I don't have time for you lady. <laughs> so there, the city of Phoenix, South Phoenix is not a mandated space, right? South Phoenix is a Southern portion of the city of Phoenix. And so the city of Phoenix has done several reports for the preservation office or for the planning office or possibly for the city council, whatever, um, over the course of the last 50 years. And they may have a variety of relevant content for us. So we have to track these reports down and we have to identify what is useful. So the best example are there's three. Um, They're called the like community heritage or history reports. I can't quite remember Um, but they're like a historic survey of specific properties. So for example, there's an African-American historic survey, there's a Mexican-American and there's an Asian-American. And so we can look at those city reports uh, to see kind of what the city determined to be of historical value, probably like the early 2000s about these particular kind of racially identified groups. And because we know some, some things, we know that most of those folks lived in parts of South Phoenix, depending on where we draw our boundaries. So we'll look at those reports and others, but there's nothing that, there's no flashing like smoking gun here. There's no like, oh, this is the report that's gonna define South Phoenix for us. This is not gonna happen. And the other report that we talked about earlier is um, the city of Phoenix established an urban village concept. And I think we'll need like a whole episode just on the urban village concept because they did not, they broke the city into kind of manageable spaces 
And uh, they tried to unite people based on kind of neighborhood and shared experience, but they did not create a South Phoenix. There's no village of South Phoenix. They created the village of South Mountain. And so we'll talk about kind of the different villages and what they thought these villages would represent. And that's a whole additional study. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> so uh, the, the, you know, the direction is always to keep reading, as we know. But next week when we get together, we'll kind of break out our, maybe our like outline of the article kind of, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're planning on doing. Yes. Let's hope. <laughs> All right. Well, Ellie, thank you for this. This was a great day. Thank you, Summer. All right, listeners, we'll see you next time.